Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas is a place famous for choices. That's why buffets in this town are so popular. The choices for entertainment are just as varied, whether it's gaming or shows or sports or even museums. Today's show has something for everybody. Up first, you'll meet the daughter of one of the city's favorite visitors. Kelly Conway joins us to share the story of her father, the late, great Tim Conway. Later, we'll switch topics to sports and specifically motorsports. Now, these days, NASCAR is the big attraction, but back 40 years ago, it was Grand Prix racing. Author Randy Cannon joins us to look back at the Caesars Palace Grand Prix. And our regulars are here as well. Mr. Big's Vintage Vegas Crime Blotter talks about Sinatra and Ava Gardner. And your Vegas insider, Scott Robin, dispels the myth that casinos always make money. From Television City in Hollywood, it's the Carol Burnett Show. With Harvey Court. You know how it is when you meet a celebrity and you think, God, he's such a nice guy when I meet him like that. I hope he's really like that at home. Well, one of those people is Tim Conway. Everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. And the good news is he was that way all the time. And we've got his daughter with us, Kelly Conway, who's written a great book, My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad. And that pretty much is true. (laughs) Growing up with Tim Conway in the funniest house in America. And... Talk about just an odd thing. We've been trying to get a hold of Kelly for a little bit, and she happens to be at the gravesite. She was going by to say hello, so kind of a, an interesting place to be. But, uh, Kelly, I am sure you miss your dad every day, and uh, it's just so nice that you were able to capture that so people could really feel comfortable knowing that, wow, we like this guy so much, and uh, he's everything we thought he was. He is, and he, I mean, he was, and and that's, like I said, the the thing that people ask me first is, was he the same at home as he was on TV? And he was. He was kind and uh, funny, and it was a walking circus every day. Well, you know, you talk about a walking circus, and people see him, and the one thing about him, he has that kind of dry sense of humor where he's low-key, and he makes other people laugh. Was it that way at home, too? Like, not only among the family, but when friends would come over and so forth? Was it always kind of where uh, he just felt comfortable in every situation? Yeah, I mean, we didn't, nothing was ever different at home for us and because that's all we knew it wasn't like we lived with a celebrity it was just our dad and he had a job and it was a great fun job um but our friends and family and people that would come over on the weekends or christmas or birthdays were just i mean they were famous but we no one ever put it together not and my i have five younger brothers and they were just it was just what we did on saturday or sunday or christmas you know um it was always fun, and it was always something different. My dad would never just 
say, hey, let's, let's go swimming, he would put together a swim meet uh, with all the neighborhood kids and have trophies and uh, T-shirts and prizes and put lanes in the pool and, uh, you know, a barbecue after. So it was always, I figured out in writing this book that I think he just did it to keep us quiet um, <laughs> and to keep us a little bit tame because there's six of us. Uh, so, yeah, well, that's always, a big family. Occupied. Well, you know, yeah. what's, what's interesting is he was big into projects. This cracks me up. Like, he, he builds a go-kart track for you in the backyard, and he doesn't bring in a crew or anything. He does it all himself. I mean, was this kind of a, a way of him just kind of relaxing and, uh, you know, getting away a little bit, you know, from the behind the camera? Definitely. He's, he was all about the projects. And uh, like I said, it wasn't just to go swimming. It was have a swim meet. And, you know, 40 kids would show up and we had teams. And yeah, the go-kart track, he was handy and he was resourceful. And he built, um, I mean, you know, like an obstacle course with a little river and uh, trees in the way and a hill and uh, lots of turns. And so he just, he, he wasn't the type to sit around and watch TV on his days off, he had to be doing something. And if it was a go-kart track or, uh, you know, make the house, make the living room into a movie theater because the Wizard of Oz was going to be on that night, um, that's what he did. Boy, and he just loved his kids. I mean, there's a great story you tell in there, like, where every time somebody goes to uh, the first day in grade school or something, he's driving around the block because he's caught up with it. It's just a wonderful guy. <laughs> he did. I mean, I think... It, he, got, he got a little tiny bit more relaxed when the sixth one came around, but <laughs> I'm the eldest and the only girl. Um, and so when I got dropped off at school, he was worried. He always thought someone was going to kidnap me, and I don't know why. Um, but he drove around the block a few times and found that during recess, I got left behind in the playground, and he snatched me up saw me crying on the playground, reached over the fence and pulled me up by my sweater and put me in his car and said, you're not going back. So I hope you <laughs> liked it. I hope you didn't make any good friends because you're going to another school. How dare they leave you out on the playground? Your dad, his entire life up until just about the very end, was always involved with show business and, you know, people wanted to have him around and so forth. As far as the kids go, I know you're, you're involved in the world of show business, right? You do design work. I am. I um, am a wardrobe stylist and costume designer, and so I do. Uh, I do a lot of commercials uh, and anything that anyone needs, really, some still shoots and TV. Um, and I kind of learned it all from hanging out at CBS when we were kids. You know, we would we would get to go visit my dad uh, a few times a month at uh, at work, and I would wander off. You know, when we got there, all the kids, all Harvey's kids would be there, Carol's kids, and Thursday afternoons were kind of a kid's thing. Uh, so all our friends were there, but I would, I would run off and go to the costume department or the hair and makeup and uh, just kind of look at all these. I mean, the costumes that Bob Mackie made uh, every week oh, were, yeah. I mean, there were, there were 40, 50 costumes per, per show. Um, you know, the big musical numbers and the sparkles and, um, and across the hall from that was the Sonny and Cher show, which he was doing as well. So all of Cher's, uh, cool gowns and her headdresses and, and, uh, it was, it was 
pretty great to yeah, grow learning up from in that the best playground. <laughs> that, yeah, no kidding. So I had no idea that uh, that was going to be my life, but um, you know, it depends on on how you grow up and what you know and what you get to see. And I got to see all that. You know, if you if you grow up um, with a dad as you know, even an accountant, that's what you know, and that's what you see. So maybe that's you know, kids go into that. Back with more from Kelly Conway, author of My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad, Growing Up with Tim Conway in the Funniest House in America, in just a moment. How'd you like to see one of the best shows in Vegas, the Jetson Concert? Well, we're still giving away passes to their shows at Planet Hollywood. Just email john, that's J-O-N, at vegasneversleeps.com with your name and address. Tickets are available while they last. Just a reminder, please visit Vegas Never Sleeps online. For the best in Vegas, it's VegasNeverSleeps.com. And for great sports, it's Sports RACX, which is available on radio stations nationwide and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports RACX. It's short for Sports Rock and Tours. And later today on Sports Rock and Tours, you'll relive what might be the most exciting season in the history of the NFL. The year was 1965, and all sorts of things happened, including incredible rookies in Chicago, a race to the finish, including a playoff to make the title game, which was unheard of back then, a running back that was forced to take over a quarterback, and more. Historian David Kaiser shares the memories. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manji, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Celebrity voice impersonated. This is Dr. Phil talking at you. You know all those messed up kids you see on my TV show? Well, they're not book readers. Your kids need something fun to read. That's why I recommend American Stonehenge. It's a modern adventure story filled with great characters and mysterious plot twists. For a free preview of the first four chapters, go to jimmyandandrew.com. That's jimmyandandrew.com. Use promo code RICH25 and receive a 25% discount. Go to jimmyandandrew.com and use promo code RICH25. Get your kids reading. That way, they stay off my TV show. What were you thinking? If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Wayne Klingman, or you might know him better as Mr. Big, is out handling a dispute, but he did want to say thank you for listening to Vintage Vegas Crime Blotter every week. He also wants to remind you you can get copies of his books on Amazon. Just simply search Wayne Klingman, that's spelled C-L-I-N-G-M-A-N, again, Wayne Klingman, for the best in Vegas reading materials.
Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Kelly Conway, the author of My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad, Growing Up with Tim Conway in the Funniest House in America, which is her love letter to her father and mother, as well as an account of the warm, laugh-filled world of her childhood. Your brother, Tim Jr., uh, I used to listen to him when I lived down in Los Angeles for a while. Uh, great guy, and I, it, my favorite times were when he brought his dad on, but uh, but just a good guy. Uh, how's he doing? He's so good. He um, He's the best brother. I love him. Um, I love all my brothers. Tim and I are exceptionally close, though, because we both live in L.A., and he's on every night, and so... I do. I listen to him every night between 6 and 10, and I hate when he's not on the air, if he's on vacation or he's booked out for a minute, because then I don't know where he is. But I know exactly where he is from 6 to 10 every night. But he's funny. He's, he's, he's as funny as my dad, and he talks for four hours a night about nothing or everything, you know, current events, or he tells stories about our family um, pretty much every night. And... Uh, He's a, he's a he's a great guy. He kind of took off where my dad left off as far as that energy of always having to do something. Um, so he's he never sits still, and it's one project after the next. And I love that he's a little bit like a lot like my dad. Well, yeah, and radio is a great outlet for him because he gets to talk for, like you say, for all that time. And I remember listening to him, and you'd really pick up, if you listen regularly, you really felt like you knew him because his personality really came out, which was kind of fun. Yeah, his banter and the words he uses and his the way he tells a story, and he's such a good storyteller. Um, and he's, you know, when my dad passed away, my dad was my best, best pal, and I talked to him every day. Uh, if I didn't see him every day, I talked to him every day. And um, so my brother has kind of taken over a little bit of that, too. Like, you know, call when you get there or let me have a phone number where you're going to be at the, in the mountains because we need, we need to get a hold of you. And so he just he, he keeps track of me and he makes sure I'm safe and sound just like my dad did. <laughs> well, you know, it was great. You mentioned Carol Burnett before. I think, I think you know, he, he'd done a, a movies. Of course, McHale's, he, my dad loved McHale's Navy, and he was great with Ernest Borgnine. The two of them were really good together. But the Carol Burnett show has really lived on where I think people instantly go to that. And I noticed that uh, on the Internet, all of a sudden, that elephant joke that was uh, edited out because uh, I think Vicki Lawrence used a swear word in it. But is it amazing yes. to you that people that had no idea, didn't watch that show or whatever, could watch that and just pass it on to everybody? I mean, I know kids that love that bit. I know. it's um, That was my dad's thing is uh, he always made sure that whatever project he did, uh, whatever was in the script, that it was clean and you could watch it with your grandparents or you could watch it with your grandkids, you know. Um, It it was nothing to be embarrassed about or having to turn the volume down if there was some language or some kind of, you know, something that kids shouldn't be listening to. Um, So, you know, he he made that last and he he really stuck to it. There's no, um, there's nothing to uh, 
have to hide, you know, for the little kids or grandparents. Yeah, and his ability to make people laugh on the air. I mean, of course, everybody knows about Harvey Corman, and I, I think your, your dad was just somebody that could get him every time. But even people like Carol Burnett, who never broke character, would do it with him. There was something about the way he would do it, because he never broke character, it seemed. You know, if, if, if you got a little snicker out of him, you were doing something. Yeah, he was he was the hardest one to get. Well, mostly because he was the one doing it to everybody else. He would think of things in the night and, uh, to try to to try to kill them on set. But, um, yeah, it was, it was hard to get him. But when he did, he would, I don't think there was any coming back from it because it would, I think it was a build up. He would end up not being able to speak. He was laughing so hard. Uh, there's a couple of those too, which were, which are so fun too. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, what I like about this book, and I think everybody should read it. I mean, if you like Tim Conway, you'll love this book. And it, it you know, it's one of those where, you're not trying to tell some secret, some some nasty family secret or anything. It really is a love letter to your uh, to your father, but it's told in a way so people kind of feel like they could understand what that was like. And Joe's really what a great childhood you all had. We had such a great childhood, and I'm and I honestly know how lucky I am every day because you read and you hear about from friends or friends of friends and how rough some childhoods were and. I, I'm grateful. I had two great parents that are from the Midwest and they kind of raised us like we were in the Midwest, even though we were in LA, Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of kept us close and, you know, protected us, but also let us do what we wanted to and ride our bikes to whoever's house we wanted to go to and, and let us have some freedom. Uh, because growing up in the seventies in the San Fernando Valley in LA, um, that was like being in the country then, you know, it's not, uh, it's not like it is, it wasn't like it is now, uh, which is kind of, you know, a big city in the Valley, but it was, it was quiet and, um, yeah, it was, it was easy to have a normal life. More with Kelly Conway, author of My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad, growing up with Tim Conway in the funniest house in America in just a moment. Well, Mr. Big is back. He's telling us a story of chivalry and the mob requested by Frank Sinatra. Today's one of our very favorite topics. We talk about a lot. Frank Sinatra. Today, one of Frank's favorite girls. Frank Sinatra was a playboy. We know this. We know that he ran through women in, in Las Vegas and Hollywood like there's no tomorrow. Especially later in his years, he liked them big, small, any size you could get there. But his love of his life, as he would tell many, many other people, was Ava Gardner. They loved each other. When they weren't busy loving each other, they're busy fighting each other. Their fights, their loving, made record noises. There was fighting, without a doubt, you knew where they were because they were always making some type of a noise. Now, fascinating to me is later in life, Ava Gardner hooked up with a man, a Hollywood star, that beat her severely. I mean, I don't mean a slap, which is horrific in itself, but went out of his way to hurt her, pull her hair, cause her physical damage, to the point where she would tell her friends that she was worried about her safety. She thought that her husband was going to kill her. Frank Sinatra found out about this from mutual friends. When Frank Sinatra confirmed this was going on, he even talked to Ava herself to see what was really going on, and, he, and she told him, 
he made a phone call to some of his friends in New York City, went to Mrs. Joyce C. Scott, explained to him, rather simplistic, if he ever laid a hand on her again, they would find him in the trunk of a car. Yeah, Frank Sinatra literally saved her life from being beaten to death by her then-husband, George C. Scott. A man I have a lot of respect for as an actor, but at the time of the situation with Ms. Gardner, he was basically a raging drunk alcoholic, and things weren't going too well. But at least Frank Sinatra stepped up and helped her when few other people was willing to do that. More with Mr. Big again next week. And don't forget to listen to Sports Rock and Tours, which follows this show on most of these stations or is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi nationwide on the Talk Media Network. I'm Xavier Mortimer, magician. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi, and I'm chatting with Kelly Conway, author of My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad, Growing Up with Tim Conway in the Funniest House in America. This book is a warm-hearted memoir of a man who was as funny off the set as on. You know, and you talk about... It's kind of like the movie Cheaper by the Dozen, and I think it is. I mean, very seldom do you actually see families that live with that. You didn't have that big a family in in that in terms of twelve, but you did have uh, a good sized family, and it kind of makes us think back to the days. At least it does to me. Where, boy, you know, you'd, you'd have friends friends of the family or something, or some big family where everybody just gets along like that, and you just see this wonderful thing. It, with with the right parents, it really can be a wonderful life to have a big family. It was, and we were, um, I always said, we, we there's six of us, so we had our own hockey team, because there's, I was a goalie, and then I had the five, my five brothers as the, uh, the five players. Um, we were always even on rides at Disneyland. Um, so it was, I mean, we took up, you know, sections of restaurants, and, and, uh, and believe me, and there was some fighting in there. Like you can't right. have six kids without uh, without fighting. But even the fights were, um, you know, we'd fight about something about who has the monopoly game, and you know who took the last popsicle or whatever it was. And you know, a few minutes later, we'd be back to um, playing and and kind of forget about it. It was it was. Uh, a few trips to the emergency room for stitches after a big brawl, but. In the ER, uh, we were laughing anyway, so. Well, you managed to stay in Southern California. A lot of people take off, so that's not, of course, what you do for a living makes sense. You know, you mentioned you did some commercials. Any we would know off the top of your head? Um, I do. I have done for a long time um, the fast food jack-in-the-box. Oh, okay. And um, I know you guys have them in, uh, out there in Nevada. And it's kind of it's kind of the west portion of the country. I think it's divided by... Uh, regionally, like this west part of mm-hmm. the United States, but there's some back east, and I've been doing those for about 24 years. Wow, nice! Um, yeah, so that's a good gig. I do a lot of Honda um, commercials, and actually, I mean anything that 
you get called for. It's uh, right. <laughs> uh, we just finished some big Super Bowl spots uh, for Honda, which uh, are always really fun and big. Um, so yeah, we're already done with Super Bowl because it's getting toward that time of the end of the year and Christmas spots and stuff like that. So it's kind of busy right now. Yep, and I always love to see successful people come from my school because I went to USC as well. So I've, I just I saw that and go, oh, this is terrific. I, I I went to USC because my our cheerleading coach in high school in at Birmingham High School in the Valley um, was a huge alumni. I mean, he was he was faithful to USC to the end. Uh, wanted me to go there because he wanted me to be a cheerleader a song girl at USC. And so I was like, cool, that's what I'll do. I'm not sure what I'm going to major in, but can you major in cheerleading? I don't know. Um, so I I went and I ended up not being uh, a song girl cheerleader because I ended up skiing more than I was cheering. So I ended up I ended up teaching, becoming a ski instructor and teaching skiing. So Great. But I loved USC. I liked it there. Oh, well, that's terrific. We're proud of you. That's great. And this book is fantastic. You can get it. It's called My Dad's Funnier Than Your Dad, Growing Up with Tim Conway in the Funniest House in America. Now, it's actually going to be released December 15th. Is that correct? Yes. And by it was supposed to be released November 1st. And then we ran into some uh, delays, actually COVID and paper supply and some editing uh, glitches. But um they had to pick a new date for it to be released. And at first I was, I was thinking, oh, you know, I didn't want it to be delayed. But when they told me it was December 15th, that's my dad's birthday. So it's it's actually this book is being released on his birthday, which is, uh, I think, is such a great sign that he's with me on this because, you know, you second, I've never written a book. I am more on the other side of the camera. I've never done this side before and I think I'll speak for myself I second guess myself every hour of every day about um, you know gosh should I have written it should I have said that should I have kept it quiet Um, and then when they told me it was the 15th I was thinking okay we're good yep absolutely (laughs) if he's he's behind it then uh, I think he would be proud absolutely it's great so you can get that for Christmas if you're hurried (laughs) it's coming out December 15th and if it's after Christmas you still want to get it it's a great book my dad's funnier than your dad growing up with Tim Conway in the funniest house in America Kelly, thank you so much. It was great meeting you, and we look forward to hearing more about it. If you ever write a second book, let us know that as well. Thanks for having me. Let's shift the conversation now from the roar of laughter to the roar of engines. Las Vegas is a town that likes car racing. I mean, you know, with the NASCAR crowds, it's really an important thing. And that didn't just start recently in this century. Oh, no, it started last century with the Caesars Palace Grand Prix, a fascinating time that we don't know a lot about until now. A great book is out, and we have the author with us, Randall Cannon, and the book is Caesars Palace Grand Prix, Las Vegas, Organized Crime, and the Pinnacle of Motorsport. Well, what a fascinating topic. Now, uh, Randall, I understand you're a big fan of uh, auto racing, anyway, right? So this seemed like a natural. I, yeah, I've been I've been involved in uh, well, at least in the fandom of motorsport, pretty much my certainly my entire adult life, and, and certainly my teen years as well. And and uh, you know, I'm, I raced a, 
uh, two-wheel motocross when I was a kid, and there's so much overlap between two-wheel and, two and four-wheel. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've always been intrigued. Well, and I've been intrigued uh, not only with rapturous fans that watch auto racing and have watched it for years, but also <laughs> you cover an interesting time in Las Vegas history, a one we don't know a lot about the 1980s. wasn't the end of uh, mobsters in Las Vegas, as we know, but it wasn't the heyday of it back in the 40s and 50s. Did you, uh, with all your research, were you kind of surprised at what the atmosphere was like back then? I, I was. Uh, it, the 80s don't seem that long ago, but it was only uh, a little over a decade after uh, corporate ownership of, of gambling casinos was first uh, you know, written into the Nevada state law. Prior to that, it was individuals and consortiums of individuals that, that were licensed to own casinos. So it was, it was still fairly new on the landscape. And, and uh uh, you know, writings at the time would would and and more recently would suggest that uh, when when corporate corporations took over the casinos, uh, they were just public figures standing out in front of you know the uh, national organized crime syndicate that were the true owners. And, and so one must wonder, you know, how how different are things now? Yeah, I guess so. But you, you look back at that time, Caesar's Palace, which is where all this takes place was really the first great mega resort down there. You know, it was, uh, I remember when they built that, it was just such a huge thing. And, of course, they had Evil Knievel jumping over the fountains and so forth. But this idea to bring a, a Formula One race, uh, kind of an interesting concept, right? Because there, there wasn't a lot of these in America. I know Long Beach had one for years, but it, it was more of a thing in Europe, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It, it, Formula One uh finds its origins in Europe. There were, at the time, in the late 70s, early 80s, there were two races in America, Watkins Glen on, uh, on the East Coast, Long Beach on the West Coast. And, and so, yeah, this, uh, the Caesars Palace Grand Prix was, was quite a unicorn, to use the term. Uh, a, a third Grand Prix in a single country uh, had never been heard of before, let alone a corporate-branded Grand Prix. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was quite creative. Back with Randy Cannon, author of Caesar's Palace Grand Prix, Las Vegas, Organized Crime, and the Pinnacle of Motorsport in just a few moments. Time now to make your picks for this weekend's NFL games. This week's games include Chargers at Cincinnati, and I like the Chargers in a slight upset. Second game is the Giants at the Dolphins. I like the Dolphins in this one. They're at home, and they're on a roll. And finally, the New England Patriots play at Buffalo against the Bills in the best game of the week. I think the Patriots right now are the best team in the AFC, coached by the finest coach in the game. I'm going to go with New England. Make sure to go to Sports RACX wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports RACX. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps. We're talking with Randy Cannon, the author of Caesars Palace Grand Prix, Las Vegas, Organized Crime, and the Pinnacle of Motorsport. The book discusses an unholy alliance of the world capital of gambling, the mob, and the international czar of Formula One. You look back at that time, Caesars Palace, which is where all this takes place, was really the first great mega resort down there. You know, it was, uh, I remember when they built that, it was just such a huge thing. And of course, they had Evil Knievel jumping over the fountains and so forth. But this idea to bring a, a Formula One race, uh, kind of an interesting concept, right? Because there, there wasn't a lot of these in America. I know Long Beach had one for years, but it, it was more of a thing in Europe, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Formula One uh, finds its origins in Europe. There were, at the time, in the late 70s, early 80s, there were two races in America, Watkins Glen on, uh, on the East Coast, Long Beach on the West Coast. And, and so, yeah, this, the, the Caesars Palace Grand Prix was, was quite a unicorn, to use the term. Uh, a, a third Grand Prix in a single country uh, had never been heard of before, let alone a corporate-branded Grand Prix. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was quite creative. Yeah, and Caesar's Palace was, was, I guess at that time, kind of, they were looking for ways to separate themselves and really making themselves uh, an international brand, right? Because everybody wanted to come out and stay at Caesar's. I know Sinatra used to play there. It was, uh, in, in those days, it still is a major player, but it was really a big deal. It, it was an extremely big deal. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was, yeah, you're right. It was, it was to some extent the, uh, the progenitor of, of modern Las Vegas as we know it today, the, the, the truly lavishly themed mega resort as opposed to a, a, uh, what had been primarily kind of desert themed, uh, destinations to that point. Yeah, because at the time, they started bringing in, like you said, the great individual, you know, the boxing matches, tennis, what have you. And now, of course, we've moved into team sports. But at that time, that was kind of a big deal. Was As this thing was going on, was there any fear at all from the all the car racing organizations and so forth about the possibility of, you know, gambling involved and so forth, like in the same way that it was by team sports that try, in those days stayed away from Vegas? If, if I may, I'll, I'll date that subject all the way back to 1954, the very first premier level uh, uh, road or uh, automobile race in Las Vegas at, at the old uh, thoroughbred track immediately, well, basically on the grounds of the current Las Vegas Convention Center. And it was the Indianapolis 500 circuit of, its, of, of the era. And, yeah, there was a lot of national concern about, about drivers uh, taking a payoff and, and throwing a race as, as gamblers might put their, their hooks into them. Fast forward to the Caesars Palace Grand Prix uh, 27 years later, and uh, the, uh, the three contenders in the, world champ- the, the Formula One World Championship went off at two-to-one odds. Uh, Caesars didn't take action, but other books took action. So it's, it's quite a departure from, from uh, uh, the origins of professional motorsports in the Valley 20, just 27 years before. You know, when you see what how popular NASCAR is in Las Vegas, does it surprise you, or do you kind of think, like, no, that makes sense? Because it strikes me as that Vegas, even in its much smaller days, 
did well with auto racing. People took to it. Uh, people did, uh, but there's always that corollary, and that's what you mentioned Frank Sinatra played at Caesars. Uh, the casino count room was going to have a really good night if Frank Sinatra was performing in the, in the Circus Maximus showroom. And by the, by the same token, uh, if, if NASCAR weekend uh, um, bumps the casino, the, count, the, you know, the casino count room take at the end of the night, then, yes, the casinos will get involved in something like NASCAR out at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Yeah, well, and one thing you showed, too, in this book are the way these different, you know, the organized crime and the world of car racing, how they integrated and so forth, and it seems like everybody was in there. I mean, Jimmy Hoffa is in your book, for crying out loud. <laughs> it, it is fascinating. I, uh, I, I didn't, you know, it took, the, it took the, the research, the path through the research to really understand that, that, that uh, there's so many tightly knit relationships between what we perceive as le- legitimate business and what we'd otherwise look at as, as the organized crime syndicate. And I started, started the story out post-World War II and Watkins Glen, the, the early formative steps toward a, a, a full Formula One Grand Prix in the United States. And I found some, some interesting connections there. Uh, go to go to the uh, one of the, the there's a Formula One event in Riverside, California, in 1960, and I find connections between the owner of Riverside and and the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa, and, and a prison term was the result of, of of that affiliation. You think that's how people why there's such a, an appeal for mob stories and so forth? I think people just are fascinated by the organization. It's just a really interesting part of American life that most people can only look through the window at. I think it was uh, the chairman of the board of the Mob Museum, Jeff Silver. Uh, he took a look. He took an early look at the book, and and uh, he said, you know, people should should buckle into in. You're going to get a front row seat, and you'll see how how organized crime just permeates uh, every everything. Every basically, the existence of American culture is permeated in in, in some way, some shape, some form. In terms of the actual layout, I thought that was interesting, too. Putting something like that at Caesars Palace and around the area, was that kind of an interesting thing, too, how they decided, well, how's this track going to be laid out and so forth? It was. They, they had to have a certain distance. Uh, they had to have a certain speed range to, to comply with, with Formula One specifications. And originally... Caesar's Palace wanted to run it out on the strip right there in front of the resort, about a, about a quarter to a half mile length of the strip. It just could not happen. It, it, at the time, it was still a, a federal highway, and it, those those approvals were just not going to not going to be forthcoming. So they looked to their own their own landmass. What do we have available? They had the big the big parking lot to the uh, to the north, and uh, that didn't provide enough land. So they looked to the Suma Corporation, the former uh, Howard Hughes Tool Company Corporation. And they had the fallow dirt just south of what was then the castaways. And so Caesars struck a short-term lease with, with uh, Suma uh, to, to use that land. And, and then they, they, they literally excavated, carved this track layout, and built a deep section Formula One specification asphalt system to create that you know, ribbon candy layout that, that uh, has kind of you know, been made famous over all these years. But it was quite an undertaking. Uh, it was completed in about three months, and you know the the uh, the trope is that it was a parking lot race course. It went through the parking lot, but it was indeed some very special asphalt. Well, the book is fantastic. Let's tell people where they can get it. I tell you, I think it's one of those books too. If you love mob stuff, you're going to love this. But if you like auto racing, it's great too. And 
You just want an interesting thing with great character development. I think this book, Caesars Palace Grand Prix, Las Vegas, Organized Crime, and the Pinnacle of Motorsport, is really a great read. So with all that, how do we get it? It's pretty easy to get. Uh, It should be in Barnes & Noble soon, but in the meantime, it's available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and by the publisher, McFarlandBooks.com, M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D, Books.com. Your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, is back. You know, some people say that owning a casino is a license to print money, but Scott says that's just not right. There's no guarantee of that at all. And even the ones that are here that you think all the formula is right, they're still struggling. SLS Las Vegas has had a very difficult time of it. Downtown Grand uh, has had a rough time of it. Um, Cosmopolitan until recently never made a penny. It only recently has started becoming profitable. It's You get a new set of managers, a new uh, marketing philosophy, and then you can turn it around. But there is no guarantee. And I think that situation has been exacerbated by the changes in the way people play. The casino was always, it always subsidized the other parts of the business. So there were shows that were lost leaders. Jubilee is a perfect example for Caesars. Uh, it was at Bally's, but it's for Caesars Entertainment. That show was a lost leader. You, you potentially draw people in because they're going to gamble. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. You can't have lost leaders. And, but that's because people are gambling less. Just overall, there's less interest in gambling. So a restaurant has to stand on its own. A show has to stand on its own. That's a big shift in the way the Las Vegas economy works. It's interesting, but I think everybody's going, uh, now what do we do? The casino was always the sure thing. Well, thanks, Scott. For a great insight into what happens in Las Vegas every day, check out Scott's site, vitalvegas.com. Finally, how'd you like to see one of the best shows in Vegas, the Jets in Concert? Well, we're still giving away passes to their shows at Planet Hollywood. Just email John, that's J-O-N, at VegasNeverSleeps.com with your name and address. Tickets are available while they last. Coming up next is Sports Rockin' Tours. If your local station doesn't carry it, go to Sports R-A-C-X wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports R-A-C-X. It's short for Sports Rockin' Tours. And please follow both Vegas Never Sleeps and Sports Rockin' Tours on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchie reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Vegas, here we go!